Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's national parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode 28. In this episode, Brian speaks with astronomer Tyler Nordgren about the night skies in the national parks. As Tyler says, half the park is after dark. Keep an eye out on Instagram for a Q&A with Tyler, as well as what you can see from your own home in the night sky. Send us your questions or comments to hello at everybody'snps.com or on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Now let's get to the conversation. Hi there. We're here with Dr. Tyler Nordgren. Dr. Norgren's going to talk to us a little bit about the Dark Skies programs at the national parks. We're very excited to, uh, to speak with you about this fresh off our trip to Big Bend National Park, I think an exemplar of the Dark Skies program. So, Doc, thanks very much for uh, taking time out to speak with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely love the parks. Just looking at your bio, and I see that you, uh, you hail from Cornell University. Which, uh, you know, it's upstate New York. Uh, I'm an alumnus as well. But it's also, when I think of astronomy in Cornell, I can't help but think of, uh, of a course, Carl Sagan. And I apologize in advance. Do you ever get sick of that inference being made? Or, or is that something you're very proud of? Oh, absolutely. I, Carl, Carl was a hero of mine as a kid. And so when I was able to come here in the early 90s as a graduate student, he was still a professor in the department. And I got to see him around the building. Oh, that's amazing. So you did get to overlap with them. That's great. It, it was one of the joys of my life. Now, uh, we'll get to the Dark Skies program, but do you have a Carl Sagan story for us? Do you have any, any interaction you had with him? Oh, the very first time I, I met him in person, I was just waiting for the elevator in the building and uh, he comes up behind me. It's, it's lunchtime. He sticks his hand out and says, I've seen you around the building. Hi, I'm Carl Sagan. And I'm just thinking, of course you are. It was just an absolute delight that he, he took the time out to introduce himself to a brand new graduate student. That fills me with joy that he was exactly, and I've heard this as well, but you have affirmed he's exactly as you would expect him to be. So that is, well, that's a great start. So we'll, we'll go from, uh, from Carl Sagan to the dark skies, which I think he would really appreciate this program. I, I actually, I would bet cash money he would appreciate this program. So let's just start there. What, what are dark skies national parks? The International Dark Sky Association, uh, it's, it's an international association dedicated to preserving dark skies and the ability of people, the general public, as well as scientists to be able to see the stars. And back in 2007, they started working on this project to create international dark sky parks to publicize these few places around the world where you still had pristine skies and you could see the stars in the Milky Way the way you know, every generation of human beings used to be able to. And they were working with the National Park Service to find one of these places. And the park that stepped up, the, that applied for this, went through the process of, of showing that they had these dark skies was Natural Bridges National Monument in southern Utah. And it struck a chord with the public. And now there are, I think, something like 60 of these in, in the U.S. alone. It, it was just absolutely amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. And I actually want to get to that. You mentioned this about 
how the, our, our ancient ancestors viewed the skies. I mean, is that why you think this is important to preserve or to at least carve out these parks where we can kind of share a kinship with our, our ancient ancestors? Or, or what is the significance behind dark skies? Why is it important that we all should see it in its natural setting? Think about the national parks themselves. Here over a you know, hundred years ago, and, and the National Park Service founding, but over a hundred years ago for places like Yellowstone and Yosemite, you had these people that said in this onrushing development and industrialization in the United States and around the world, it was important to set aside these few beautiful places where people could see the natural world, this natural wonder. John Muir talks about a remnant, a memory of the Garden of Eden, if you will someplace where people could see the, the natural world still. And the night sky is exactly that. It is the natural world that is visible when the sun goes down. All throughout human history, as long as we've been human beings, we had been able to look up at night and see the stars, the Milky Way, the planets, tell the story of it promoting science and astronomy and astrology and religion. All of this comes from seeing this greater universe around us. That is why it is vital to preserve these places. Otherwise, they'll just fade away without us realizing it. Right. It's almost as though you're only seeing half the park if you don't have time or you can't see the night skies. I mean, you're seeing that great natural landscape mostly during the day, but not looking up at night. Again, you're missing half the story almost. I don't know if you would agree with that, but it seems like it. Absolutely. In fact, I coined the phrase half the park is after dark uh, about 10 years ago to promote this idea that once the sun goes down, that doesn't mean that you have to go back to the lodge or back to your tent and, and go to sleep. No, there's another half of the world out there. You know, half the day happens at night. So that's exactly what we want people to see. So along those lines, what programs, and I know you've had a hand in a lot of these, but what programs exist if you want to see that other half of the park at night? The first thing is, and it's the thing that is so wonderful about the National Park Service, it's the Evening Ranger Program. These programs, I mean, where else in today's world do you go out and get a knowledgeable person, a scientist, or just a, a skilled educator, stand around a campfire and give you a story, teach you a lesson? something about history, people, science, ecology. That is what the Park Service does. And evening ranger programs about the sky, about nighttime, are the most popular evening programs that, that park rangers give. That's, in fact, how I first wound up working with the Park Service. I was on vacation in Yosemite, and I just decided I'd go see the evening ranger program about astronomy in the parks. And it literally changed my life. So if you are there, or if you are giving that talk yourself, what would you look at in the sky? I mean, if, if you're there with a bunch of just folks like us who, who really don't know too much about, we don't have, we, we didn't study cheek by jowl with Carl Sagan. So, so if you were just talking to laymen like us, what would you point out in that night sky that we're seeing that we're not going to see in our usual light pollution area uh, here on the East Coast? The first and foremost is that you go out and say a summer program or, or in the early fall and you have the Milky Way high overhead. 80% of people in the United States and Europe can no longer see the Milky Way from where they live. And that, that number gets worse every single year. But in America's national parks, it is the easiest place for people from all over the world to come and see the Milky Way. 
And that Milky Way is our galaxy. It's a collection of over 200 billion stars that make up our home galaxy. And when you see that band across the sky, you are seeing this part of the universe that we belong to. It's the single greatest, largest thing visible to the naked eye that shows that we are part of something larger than ourselves. And so that's there. And because it looks like a band that tells us that we're in a flat disk, which our galaxy is a big spiraling pinwheel. And because it's brighter in the summer and fall than it is in winter, it tells us that we are not located in the center of the galaxy, but outskirts. So we literally learn about our place in the universe by seeing that changing Milky Way overhead at night in the park. And our scale in the universe, especially just our little home galaxy. You know, I can wrap my mind around our solar system. All right. Eight planets, some exoplanets, right? It was nine when I was a kid. Now it's less, but that, you know, it's okay. I can count to eight, right? I can count to nine. But when you talk about even our home galaxy, how many stars in our home galaxy? There's something like over 200 billion. I mean, the exact number doesn't really matter down to the, the, the last digit, but it's somewhere in that order of about a couple hundred billion stars. And over the, the last 10, 15, not really actually 20 years, uh, as you mentioned, we've been discovering planets around many of those other stars. And the, the latest research seems to indicate that about half of those stars you can see at night with your own eyes, about half of them probably have planets. So think about that. We're, you're now, we're now thinking about over 100 billion other planetary systems. And at that point, you can begin to do this math of imagining, well, if there's maybe one planet in each of those that might be habitable or Earth-like, and if one in a hundred of those might actually have life evolve on them, and you go through the, the whole, what's called a Drake equation of one-tenth of those where life becomes intelligent, and one-tenth of those maybe where they're able to communicate, you can begin to do this wonderful mathematical exercise of figuring out how many other intelligent civilizations might be open up there looking back down at us right now? And it's, it's staggering. Well, Doc, that's a, it's a great point. If you actually tease out the Drake equation and you come up with that number, of course, the follow-up question is, well, where are they? Well, you know, and that the, the last term in that equation is, well, how long do each of them last? The longer the last they last, the, the more they're up there right now. And you know, during this global pandemic that we find ourselves in right now, it, it does make you wonder about how long a civilization is, is fated to last. So that number can be anywhere from a pessimistic one, and we are it, to maybe the optimistic that there could be thousands up there right now. But the galaxy is a big place. They just may be very, very far away. And maybe we're just in a boring corner of the universe in the galaxy, maybe. But you mentioned that scale, and that's what I wanted to really, no pun intended, dig in on, because depending on the park you're in, so we were just in Big Bend, and so you have, during the day, geologic time scale, you have rock formations anywhere from hundreds of millions to maybe a, a billion or so years old. You have the biological scale when you're looking at the Cenozoic period, right? The rise of mammals or the decline of dinosaurs. And then a few hours later, after dinner, you look up at the skies and you're looking at, I don't know what the term is, but uh, that scale of time 
of light years and billions and billions of years, billions and billions of stars, even our own galaxy, not even counting all the other galaxies that are out there that are, are similar size. I think that's where you show up for a nice walk in the woods or a walk in the desert and you leave with this sense of scale, which depending on your perspective is either awe-inspiring or it makes you, very, it makes you feel very insignificant, right? Absolutely. I, one of the things that I, I used to do with students is we'd create a model solar system just to figure out how vast the distances are in our own tiny little system of planets going around the sun. And to, to give you a sense of that, imagine you could shrink our sun down to the size where it's like a large grapefruit. I used to teach in Southern California, so we had grapefruits. You could pick them off the trees. So imagine you had this large grapefruit that you, you put in the palm of your hand. You'd actually have to have a your friend, say, hold up a little blue candy sprinkle, and that's the earth to the exact same scale. And you'd have to get your friend walk 16 yards away from you in order to get that distance to be just right. So the sun is a grapefruit, and 16 yards away, you've got this tiny little candy sprinkle. And if you then wanted to, to pace out the rest of the solar system, Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system, would be an M&M skittle. And you'd have to walk about 100 yards, about a football field away. And to get all the way out to Pluto, which is there in the Kuiper belt, this, this belt of, of icy cometary debris, you'd have to walk another 400 yards, another four football fields. Just from the sun to this outer edge of the things that we've explored with our own spacecraft, you've got only about 500 yards. And on that scale, the nearest other star to us, Alpha Centauri, would be another grapefruit, but it'd be a grapefruit in New York. So you're now talking about continental distances, and that's just the nearest star to us. It really is stunning. And when you think about how far we human beings have actually traveled, that distance on that scale between the, the Earth and our moon is about the width of your thumb. Yeah. It puts everything in perspective. And again, it's depending on your perspective. Either it makes you feel insignificant or it's awe-inspiring. It seems like our ancients, our ancient ancestors, gravitated more to the awe-inspiring. I know you're a man of science, but can you speak to any of their cultural beliefs when they themselves looked up at that night sky? You're absolutely right. And for myself, I do look at the sky with awe. And I'd like to come back to that a little bit later in our conversation. But you think about back before there were TVs or reading lights or anything to, to give you something else to do once the sun went down, the sky was it. It was the thing that you saw, and you saw it with absolute clarity because there was nothing more than maybe the light of your campfire. We have millennia of stories that people all over the world came up with to explain what they saw. I, one of the ones that I love that comes from the eastern U.S. here along uh, the, the length of the, the Appalachians has to do with the Big Dipper. And today we know the Big Dipper is part of the constellation Ursa Majoris, the, the Big Bear. You know, when you take a look at the, the pictures of what that constellation looks like, you've got this bear with the handle of the Big Dipper, these three stars and the handle of the Big Dipper as the tail of the bear. Well, bears don't have tails. In Native American star stories here from the eastern U.S., 
those three stars are actually hunters following the bear. And over the course of a night, as the earth turns, this, this bear makes a big circle in the sky as it, as it walks around the North Star. And over the course of the year, the place where that bear walks during the evening, during the night, and then during the morning changes. In the fall, all through the course of the night, the bear walks along the northern horizon as viewed from here in the continental U.S. And in the morning, walks up into the sky. And the story that they had was that it's at that time of year that the three hunters who've been following the bear fire their arrows and pierce the bear, and the bear begins to drip blood, which drips down onto the trees and colors them red. And well, if you've been here in the eastern U.S., you see those wonderful maples turning red in the fall, and the bear goes up in the sky as it dies, and then it's uh, they boil the, the bear in one of the cooking pots they carry along with them, and that Fat drips out and coats the trees yellow. And so you get these reds and the yellows as the bear is, is, is killed and eaten. And then the body of the bear wanders up into the sky. The, the spirit of the bear wanders fully up into the sky, back into its uh, cave, which is uh, Corona Borealis, the northern crown, then to be reborn the following spring. And so you've got this, this great story that connects the motion of the constellations, the motions of the stars, to the changing seasons that we have here on Earth. And so it, it brings order to this otherwise chaotic world in which we live. So that, that leads to my next question. So do you have a favorite season here in, in North America? What's a favorite season to look up at those night skies and be in one of these dark skies parks? My favorite time is late summer, early fall, uh, because that's when, after the sun goes down and twilight fades away after about an hour, hour and a half, it's a moonless evening. You get the Milky Way, the, and the Milky Way is high overhead. Uh, one of the things I do with a company out in Flagstaff is every couple of years, we do an astronomy-themed rafting trip through the Grand Canyon. It's that time of year that we always go, because... As you get down to the canyon, your, your view of the sky constricts to this band overhead, but the Milky Way will be right there in the middle of it. And so it's a chance for people to, to see the, the Milky Way in one of the darkest places in the country. So anywhere you go from the desert southwest up to, say, Acadia National Park in Maine, you get this beautiful, spectacular Milky Way high overhead at that time of year. So you mentioned Grand Canyon, you mentioned Acadia. You know, we have to ask, what are some of your other tips for visiting a national park with dark sky programs? What are some of your favorites? First things first is take a look not only at the time of year, but take a look at the time of month. If your goal is to go to see these dark, starry skies as vivid as possible, you'd like to go when there's no moon up in the sky, at least no moon in the evening sky. Find a calendar of moon phases and go around new moon or maybe third quarter when the moon is only up after midnight. Those are the best times of month to go. Because if you go during full moon, as beautiful as that full moon is, its light washes out the fainter stars. And so, in fact, you'll, you'll wind up with a view of the sky possibly very similar to what you might have back home in whatever city you're from. So go for that, that dark sky, that dark time of a month with no moon. The next thing to do is, again, if your goal is to look for stars, look for parks that have particularly clear skies. So places where in the fall or late summer, it's a good clear sky. Now, Grand Canyon in the summertime, that's a great place to go, but they get summer monsoons there. In the summer, you can actually get rather cloudy skies at, at night. 
but in crisp early fall, the skies are usually quite good. Uh, the other place I'll mention is the Great Lakes area, places like Sleeping Bear Dunes in Michigan, Isle Royale, and some of those parks around there. The Great Lakes have spectacularly dark skies, but again, you begin to run into questions of clouds. So you know, check to see what the local climate is like. You stole a march from me. We were just in Isle Royale last summer. We lucked out. While we were there, at least, we had uh, absolutely clear skies. Again, the scale of uh, the, that sky in mid-August with the loons in the background, it was just perfect. We were on high ground, too, for a couple of nights. It was perfect. I didn't realize that we had nailed it. That was just when we could, we could all get away. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad we did. I'll, I'll tell the guys I was on that trip with that we, uh, we nailed it. Of course, one other big event we have coming up is the next solar eclipse in 2023. So given that track, where do you suggest, uh, where should we start making our reservations now? We've got a couple solar eclipses coming up in the next few years here. The first one, as you mentioned, is going to be October of 2023. That one's an annular eclipse. And so what I mean by that is the moon's orbit around the earth is an ellipse. So sometimes it's a little farther away, sometimes it's a little closer. One of the things that come around in the news recently is this idea of a supermoon. When the moon is really close, when it's full, you get a moon that's 10% bigger than it otherwise would be. Well, if you wait two weeks for the moon to go around to the other side before or after a supermoon, that new moon, when the moon is between the Earth and the sun, will be when the moon is at its farthest point from the Earth. It will look too small to completely cover the sun. And if the alignment is perfect, you get this ring of fire. And that's what's going to happen in October of 2023. That track of annularity goes from the west coast of Oregon over Crater Lake National Park in Oregon, down through Nevada over Great Basin, and then into Utah over part of Canyonlands and uh, let's see, Lake Powell, then into Mesa Verde in Colorado, and then Chaco Canyon in New Mexico down through New Mexico, and then finally into West Texas, and then out through San Antonio. So you've got this amazing, amazing band of about a dozen, two dozen national parks and monuments that that sun is going to travel over. It's on a Saturday during a great time of the year for weather. What a great tip. Make your reservations now, I guess, if you can. So where were you in 2017 for the last big one in August of 2017? I was just outside of John Day Fossil Beds National Monument out in eastern Oregon, and it was beautiful. Clear blue skies, absolutely spectacular landscape. We were on a, a ranch just outside the park. We had 300 people there in this, this wonderful green field. The, the woman who owned the ranch had set up a chuck wagon barbecue the night before, and so we had breakfast catered for us in that morning. And Everybody got out, wandered out into the field, and we just had a day that you wouldn't believe. What about you? We were home here on the east end of Long Island, so we didn't get the total eclipse, but we had a beautiful, clear summer day. Again, the eerie thing was how animal life just got confused. Suddenly, the birds stopped. Mosquitoes came out, and so they confused the mosquitoes for a little bit. But it was great. I think all those adjectives people give, surreal, that all fit. It was very much a dreamlike sense for a few minutes there. It was wonderful. So it, it got us hooked on it. So that's the other thing that uh, for folks here in the Northeast and the Midwest that, that missed that total solar eclipse in 2017, the next total solar eclipse where the moon totally blocks out the sun is April 8th, almost uh, April 8th of 2024. So about four years from now. 
And it's going to go from Mexico up through San Antonio and Texas. And then across the Midwest, it's going to go over Buffalo, New York, Niagara Falls, Rochester, and then out over Maine. So folks here in the the Northeast will get a chance to see a total solar eclipse in just an easy day's drive. And it'll in totality will last about twice as long as last time. So about four minutes. So it'll be even better. Western New York has some great state parks. So I think make your reservations for places like Letchworth and the the Buffalo area state parks. And I think that's going to be a great time too. Well, well, listen, Doc, this has been amazing. We do have a special treat, if you wouldn't mind. As a matter of fact, it's funny that we were talking about Carl Sagan. Sitting here on my left is my oldest daughter, and who in school is study astronomy a bit. And actually, we are queued up is the original Cosmos program that we're going to watch together, as I did basically when I was around her age. Because of the park, she's very much become interested in night skies. If it's okay with you, she has a couple of questions she's written down that she'd love to ask you, if that's okay. Absolutely, yes. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to her right now. So my first question is, um, what's the biggest constellation? Wow, that's a great question. Let's see. I don't actually know what the biggest constellation is. So you've stumped me right off the, off the bat. But I will say that there's some amazingly big ones out there. There's some Majoras, uh, the, the big bear. By the time you factor in the Big Dipper, that it's its tail, its body, and then its legs and head, it's really huge. Same thing with Orion and his arms. <laughs> I'll have to look that one up. Thank you. Next is my youngest daughter, and she has a one question for you. So here you go. What's the farthest star in a constellation? Wow. Okay. There's something that a lot of people don't realize that the stars that make up any given constellation, they aren't actually near one another. They're all at random distances away from us. It's only our vantage point here sitting on the Earth that they seem to paste themselves on this great big sphere, this celestial sphere out there. So as an example of the, the Big Dipper, those stars are all at very different distances away and only from our spot here on Earth. Do they actually look like they they make a bucket? So here's something. All of the stars that you see at night are in our galaxy. And so the most distant star that you can see with your eye is really only about maybe a few thousand light years away. So it means it takes light a few thousand years to travel that distance. But the most distant thing that you can see with your naked eye is the Andromeda galaxy. And that's about a million light years away. And if I remember correctly from our Night Skies program at Big Ben, that galaxy is coming to get us at some point, right? We're going to collide with that galaxy. Is that true? We are slowly approaching the Andromeda galaxy, yes. So at some point, a few billion years in the future, we are going to collide. And it will then become this really amazing splash of stars and galaxies across the sky. So we got that to look forward to. (laughs) We do. We do. Well, we also have to look forward to a lot of these trips to the Night Skies program at the National Parks. Dr. Tyler Norgren, we really appreciate your time and getting us all excited. Forthcoming trips to the national parks to, again, look up in those night skies. What is your saying that you coined? Half the park is after dark. Half the park is after dark. Thank you once again. This was a great discussion. It's gotten us excited to get back out there again at night at our national parks. Dr. Tyler Norgren, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure is ours. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. 
You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybodysnps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybodysnationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybody's national parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.